Before proceeding with this episode, a warning to our listeners, especially those currently struggling with or managing eating disorders. This episode depicts, in some detail, the actions and strategies of someone with an eating disorder. Hi, this is Ellie Kushner from Dancewell Podcast, and today um, we're talking about compulsive exercise. This is part of our Eating Disorder Awareness Week series, and I'm speaking with Leslie Ann Ellingberg, who is a yoga teacher, a personal trainer, um, an exercise physiologist, and a dancer. She currently lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where she's um, joining us on the phone from. And for most of her life, Leslie has struggled with various eating disorders and an exercise addiction. She began to seek help about six years ago as she graduated from college. Leslie takes the 12th step, which is carrying the message of recovery to others, to heart. Through donation-based yoga classes, social media storytelling, awareness, and blogging, she strives to support those who are struggling and educating those who may not be familiar with mental illness. So thank you so much, Leslie, for sharing this story, which um, is so personal, and I just really respect and appreciate your transparency in talking about this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, your bio says... Um, that you've struggled with exercise addiction. And I know in our previous conversations, we've talked about how um, some people don't acknowledge that as a term. I think the preferred clinical term is compulsive exercise, but um, that exercise addiction really makes sense to you. Can you talk about what that is and and why that term makes sense to you? Sure. So the reason that I call it an addiction, because if you look at like the definition, so the generic definition that you would find in the dictionary is a fact a fact or condition of being addicted to a substance, thing, or activity. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at what the American Society of Addiction Medicine states, it's a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related activity. And then after some time, it goes on to later say that it is characterized by the inability and consistently abstain impairment and behavior control, a craving, diminished recognition of significant problem with one's behaviors and interpersonal relationships and a dysfunctional emotional response. And so that's why I kind of just say an addiction to exercise or even in my eating disorder days, I was addicted to my eating disorder just because of I could not see clearly. I had a lack of judgment. It affected my relationships with people. You know, you get a high from either skipping meals or seeing how long you can work out. I can beat my goal of yesterday. Yesterday, I ran 10 miles. Today, I'm going to run 12. Or I only ate 1,000 calories. Today, I'm going to eat 800. So that's kind of, and you get really excited and you feel a high from beating those goals kind of things. And those are horrible goals. But, you know, when you're in that mindset and you can't think those are very fulfilling goals or, you know, going to bed on an empty stomach. Um, how sore can I make my body? That used to be something I used to measure as well too. How long was I sore, which is not good at all. Right. And your soreness needs to clear within a day or two, not a week. Right. Right. Otherwise you're not dealing with DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. You're dealing with injury, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about a little bit more. Um, So simultaneous to all of this, you were studying exercise physiology in college, right? So um, 
you knew these things that you just described, that these are not healthy goals, that this is not how your body is supposed to respond to training. Um, and yet, can you explain how your sort of intellectual understanding of the situation was not aligning with your lived in um, compulsive habit? Yeah, so that was very, those are very interesting four years. I even took an exercise um, psychology class at one point. That was towards the end of my collegiate career. And that's when I kind of started to think, oh, maybe I have a problem. Wow. Um, was because of that class. But yeah, so it was just pretty much I would learn the physiology behind exercise. So how exercise affects your body. Um, and then the science behind exercise, you know, learning to develop training programs. And again, the cells response to exercise and all these things, you know, muscle soreness, EPOC, which um, is about your post oxygen consumption after you exercise and just everything you could want to learn. I learned and then I would manipulate that into the goals that I wanted. Wow. So once I learned about how your body burns more calories when you're sore and EPOC and that thing, I was like, okay, I'm going to make myself sore with every workout that I do. Mm even though I know in the next slide that I just saw that that can lead to injury mm -hmm. um, and leads to a thing called overtraining, which is a term in the sport world where you are, you work out so much, you do everything to the extreme and then your body fails to perform, which leads to lack of sleep. Burnout. Yeah. yeah. Burnout was a huge one. Poor performance. You know, for me, mine would have been poor performance in the dance studio, things like that. Um, so for a while, I was chronically overtrained as well, too. Like, I remember not being able to sleep at all. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a little side effect of that as well. But, yeah, I would just find, oh, okay, so this will, I can raise my heart rate this way, burn more calories in less amount of time. Oh, that's perfect. I can try that out before dance or whatever to get warm. Mm-hmm. But then, you know. like you said, I thought that was so articulate how you said you were just ignoring the follow-up slide, which oh, yeah. communicated the dangers and the risks of these, even though you were, you know, being tested on them and you knew them, you didn't um, apply them. You talked oh, to, yeah. you, um, I want to hear more about um, the psychology class that led you out of this, but let's start at the beginning. When, when did this all start for you? Yeah, so... I had disordered eating tendencies all my life. I remember being about like third grade or so and I'm looking at my body and saying something about it. And my mom was like, what are you talking about? Um, and, you know, being in the South, butter's everywhere. So I just, oh, yeah, buttered rice, butter, buttered peas, butter pasta, all that goodness. Mm -hmm. And I just started like getting rid of that and I started changing how to eat a little bit and this was in elementary school when most kids and most females start to develop a not so great body image is usually around third or fourth grade so I became a statistic wow. wonderful um but then just throughout life it kind of ebbed and flowed um there'd be times I'd be really really good and then times you know I wouldn't be as smart and then when I started dancing ballet you know I became more aware of what I was eating my parents are starting to become a little more healthier as well. And then 
when I started college, my eating disorder, my disordered eating became more like anorexic and orthorexic, which you have talked about earlier in the week for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And then that's just where I started to just kind of go on with that. So it kind of started as like a purging use of exercise, um, which is where, you know, you would binge or eat or do something in a mass quantity, and then you're going to purge it all out. Some people would throw it up, you know, I would, mine would just start by being in the gym because I loved mm-hmm. working out. I loved moving. Um, I started going to the gym when I was 17 when I took a little hiatus from ballet. But then I just started going more and more with it. And then also when I started dancing in college, feeling a little inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something just kind of turned and just became obsessed with it. And then when you're in a major and that teaches exercise that's part of what you do for a grade that's part of what you do for fun you and your buddies you go to the weight room and you practice what you learn in class so you're developing training programs for each other you're working on form or working on olympic lifts you know all that stuff and then i was also as a group x instructor and i love teaching group x so i was always constantly moving and working out i think that's um such an interesting point because dancers most dancers love activity and most of them love movement. I mean, you said that, and I think we all can relate to that. So um, you said that there was this psychology class. So how did you know that your passion for activity had made this shift into the realm of unhealthy? Um, Well, by that time, my life had already kind of become what you call in the 12 steps, like insane or um, not manageable mm-hmm. right so we always talk about you know usually when you begin to hit rock bottom is when you just can't sustain what you are doing anymore and, and is, that, is that like you can't sustain your schoolwork or your social life or is that you can't sustain the activity that you're the the purging or it was more of, of a sustain of the activity and the relationships mm-hmm. um i mean type A perfectionist over here. So schooling was not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, because I could easily compartmentalize. But the thing about with addictions is you think you're trying to hide it from people that you love or people that you know. But all my friends knew something was off, off with me. My professors did too because mm-hmm. um, they knew me really well because I worked in the office. So they saw me all the time. And just because I also worked with athletes, so they knew that something's not right with her because she has these characteristics of what, say, their cross-country runners used to have. Mm-hmm. Because the cross-country runners, there's a high um, eating disorder rate in them as well, too. Um, yeah, they're a very vulnerable population. So I think they just knew, but they're not going to say anything because it's hard to. Because what if you do misspeak mm-hmm. or what if she's not ready to hear it? Um, but yeah, so the psychology class I took, I took towards the end of my career is one of my favorite classes I've taken. I still use it to this day when I'm working with, you know, whether it's my group exercise participants, whether it's my yoga people or my personal trainers, because you're just learning, my clients, you're learning about how to get people motivated, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you're using the visualization response, things like that. Um imagery, all those different things. But I remember we had to take these like scale papers and I still have mine and it's kind of funny. 
um, I pulled them out the other day when I was getting ready to write a script for a baseball team I was working with, a visualization script, and I found my old scale papers of, like, the depressive scale, mm-hmm. um, the motivation, mm-hmm. the anxiety scale, how you view yourself scale. There's all these – I yep. don't know the terms for them, but we had to do all of them. And I can tell that I lied to myself because he was going to read them because I totally made myself seem a lot better off than I was. Mm-hmm. But I remember while we, he was giving the lectures and you're talking about things like personality types and how that ties into eating disorders or just what coping mechanisms were. We talked about coping and the overtrained athlete. And they even, we even talked about dancers at one point, you know, I'm sitting there going, oh, that sounds a lot like me. Hmm. Oh, that's what I do have. And I don't know, something just started to change within me once kind of seeing it in a different light. And just learning the psychology behind it, I think, brought it up a little bit more. And that time at two, I was also um, in my really darkest stage. So I was injured. I was... I don't know how I was surviving back then, but I was also in a relationship that kind of started to open my heart and was like, okay, something's not right. I think it all just kind of combined together. Yeah. So Um, a lot of, a lot of factors. It's hard just to pinpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to pinpoint just one thing because it's so complex and so varied. It's, you know, while I knew what I was doing was wrong, I just couldn't stop. But then when you start having other people kind of point out things to you in a in a way that's not judging you or anything. Yeah. Just that's... out of concern or mm-hmm. like, you know, um, it was, it also became to a point too where it's like, well, if you want to do this as a career or something, you got to change your ways. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the, the nice think about an academic class is that that information is just given without judgment Mm -hmm. it's not and it's it's not a intervention it's just um made available to you and we don't get that information generally as dancers so yeah and I think there's something about that and I think there's something about someone giving you a piece of paper and it's kind of my first step into inventory which is another step where we're always doing inventory of ourselves but it's that first time you're doing inventory it's you're looking at this piece of paper and you have to answer questions like how often do I feel this kind of mood? You know, when you're talking about depression Mm -hmm. or how often do I go to sleep and it takes me forever to go to sleep because I'm thinking about all these thoughts or how am I sleeping? You know, just all these things you're having to be honest with yourself. Well, I wanted to be honest, but I was like, I can't be too honest because he's going to read these. And I don't think he did. I just think he wanted us to complete them. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. he gave everyone an A. And they're confidential. But, you know, so. Yeah. But, you know, there's something about having to answer these questions honestly about yourself yeah. that I think really starts to play with you. And you're like, man, I just want to, like, sleep well at night or, you know. Yeah, this is the last thing I thought about myself, and it wasn't very good. So, what can I say positive about myself and put on this piece of paper? Yeah. So it's just it was a very nice way, I think, to kind of start getting that recovery ball rolling 
um, rolling as well as, you know, having some friends who are really supportive during that time. Um, let's come back to that recovery in a moment. Um, but in between you've talked a lot about sleep. It seems like that was really, um, a very telling experience for you was your, your inability to sleep either because of overtraining. So physiological reasons or because of the compulsive thought habits, but, um, what were the other negative consequences? I think you said somewhere that you were getting injured all the time or, um, what did you have trouble with? friends or things like that? I, luckily for me, I had some friends who were really, really great. Um, and some really supportive people who were just fun to be around, you know, there, a lot of them are my dance buddies. So we saw each other all the time. We even worked out together because they all like to work out because, you know, they were, they would come to my yoga classes or whatever. Um, but I was chronically injured. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a time in college where I didn't have something wrong with me. Uh, what kind of injuries did you have? So most of my injuries were overuse injuries, also known as repetitive stress injuries. So at one point, my first injury was uh, bilateral Achilles tendonitis. So I had Achilles tendonitis in both of my calves. Mm-hmm. I got that from a dance intensive that I went to because I'd never been to a dance intensive before. My body was just not ready mm-hmm. for that for dancing nine to five, five days a week. No one, when you've never done that before, your body's just shocked. Yeah. It's shocked. And then when I came home from that, I was already like feeling not so hot. Well, I decided to train for an 8K with my friends anyways. So I decided to run and I had four weeks to train for that. So um, by the time I got treated for that, if I would have waited longer, it probably um, was not very, would not have been very beneficial. Because it was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I think the following year, I started to have some hip issues like most dancers. I think I had some hip flexor tendinitis kind of going on, adversitis in the hip at one year, um, just where the bursa and one of my hips got inflamed. I think it's just because of a piece of choreography that I was doing where we were doing a lot of leg lifts mm-hmm. in a parallel position. Um, and I was hypermobile, so not really knowing how to balance that. Yeah. And then the one that kind of did me in and was the hardest one was towards the last year and a half, I was diagnosed with patellofemoral pain. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. And I also had um, patella tracking issues before that. So, but the patella tracking issues led to the patellofemoral pain, which led to hamstring tendonitis. So at one point I had my legs were decorated in kinesiology tape. <laughs> it became my accessory of choice with my shorts and skirts um, was brightly colored KT tape. And it's, you know, it's interesting because you're, you're able to cite sort of the incidents that contributed to these injuries, and yet you simultaneously also know that underlying all of it was this disordered eating, poor nutrition, um, overtraining, lack of rest. And so I, I think that is often that, you know, we know that dance injury is multifactorial and mm-hmm. they do tend to be these repetitive use injuries. So it's, it's interesting. You can, you know, I'm sure in your disordered state, you were able to say like, oh, I have this because of that move, you know, oh, that yeah. movement or that choreography. But now in retrospect, yeah, that, that was the inciting incident, but perhaps you wouldn't have been so vulnerable to all of these. You could have sustained that load better if you had been well rested and 
for well, sure. If, well, nutrient. Because yeah. I think a lot of people too forget that when you're injured, you actually need to consume more calories because mm-hmm. um, your body's trying to heal itself. So, and I was lucky too. I had a lot of friends in the athletic training department. So I would be like their little extra little guinea pig. I'd get free treatments. And one of my buddies in there was like, are you eating enough? And I would, and she kind of knew something was on with me because she saw the same things in her cross country runners mm-hmm. and her track and her track females. She suspected the answer to that, mm-hmm. but she, yeah. Was, yeah. And, you know, I would tell her, you know, I am, she's like, well, you know, maybe try eat a little bit more because when you're injured, your body actually burns more calories because it's trying to heal itself. And so she was like, you know, and you need to rest more. And that was always the hard part for me was, you know, the resting part. I was on exercise rest one time um, where they were like, you know, you can't run when you teach group fitness. You need to avoid these movements. So it made my job hard. They're like, you know, we don't need you in class because they were trying to prepare me for these dance intensives in the summer with a short turnaround. And so it was just always something. And when something's taken away from you, that you're, it's your identity, it's like, well, all I know is dancing and exercise. What what do I do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. So it was just always a lot. Um, and I didn't like going into the training room to get treatments when I knew people who were there. Because I was like, I don't want people to ask what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking at the um, National Eating Disorders um, statistics, and they, they have one about athletic trainers and that um, 91% of athletic trainers in a, col- in a study of um, college athletic trainers working with female athletes found that 91% reported dealing with an athlete with an eating disorder and um, – 27% of them felt confident identifying an athlete with an eating disorder, and 93% felt that increased attention needs to be paid to preventing eating disorders. And I've read another oh, yeah. statistic elsewhere that it was something like 100% of, I think it was trainers, said they needed more information about how to manage these conditions. Um, what did you do when, what were the first steps of your recovery? So you've been talking throughout this interview about a, is it a 12-step or a 13? 12-step program? Yeah, 12 steps, yes. Um, and so can you can you talk us a little bit through um, the process of your recovery? Sure. So how it first started, and I always kind of make this joke, is that so I the, – the man who helped me seek recovery is actually now my husband. Um, so I kind of credit a lot of stuff to him. But when I was really injured, when I had the patellofemoral pain on both knees and the bilateral hamstring tendonitis, and I was getting ready to go to Bates Dance Festival, and everything seemed to be, like, collapsing in on me. because so I was getting ready to go to Bates, but I couldn't take any dance classes because mm-hmm. I was injured. I could only take – I only took one physical dance class. Um, and I was – my friends who were in grad school were graduating. So everything was just kind of – blowing up mm-hmm. and I remember saying something well I just ate soup and fruit today because that was kind of my thing and he goes you know he goes, maybe you should talk to someone maybe talk to one of the counselors in the counseling center on campus and I was like no I don't need any I don't need any help 
he politely asked me like six times. And then like most people who are in a addictive state, we're just like, okay, we're going to go just to make you be quiet. To mm-hmm. say I mm-hmm. So I did that because I didn't want him to ask me anymore. Because <laughs> that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. And then I started to go a little bit and I was like, oh, okay. I can talk about myself for an hour. I can get down with this. <laughs> and... I didn't like my first therapist, so then I went to Bates. I came back, and I was diagnosed with food allergies, so I was also really, really sick during this time for other reasons, and I was like, okay, I have to talk to someone because I don't know what to do. Like, I already don't eat, and then I have all these foods I can't eat, so what do I do? So I started going to the counseling center. I found a really good counselor on campus, and I just started going for that. And just to kind of handle the stress and anxiety thing. And then one of my dance friends, uh, we went to a dance convention together. And when we were on our way back, she noticed, she told me how she noticed I packed all my food in plastic baggies. Mm-hmm. And that I didn't really stray from what I had brought. And so this is another three-day weekend of dancing nine to five. And she began to share her story with her eating disorder and how she used, um, she did EDA, which is Eating Disorders Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So it's like AA or NA, but for eating disorders. And shared that with me and gave me her, sent me a PDF of the book. So I started doing the 12 steps and I kind of like made an official, like, I'm going to do this recovery thing about November of 2011, right before I graduated. And then from there, it's just been a bunch of therapy and counseling and, you know, working the program and just kind of doing all the things to keep myself. Yeah. Yeah. Learning to take care of myself. That that one day I'll figure out what that is. (laughs) Do you still have food allergies? I still have food allergies. Mm -hmm. Um, They are a pain. But so it's kind of interesting thing. I never really thought about food allergies. I had. GI disorders, like IBS and stuff, all my life because my dad had it. And, you know, some of that stuff is genetic. And But when I was in my ED phase, I was pretty much just living on peanut butter, apples, um, bagels. I mean, you know, and some other things. I don't want to get too much into it for trigger sakes. But, you know, I had my select foods that were my safe foods. But then I started getting chronically fatigued, and I had migraines, which I've never had before in my life. And my IBS got worse. And when I was at Bates, my throat started to get scratchy and itchy, and I couldn't breathe. I called my mom, had a peanut allergy. Mom was like, oh, you have a nut allergy. So when you get home, we're testing you. So I got home, and within three days, I was tested, and I had all these food allergies. And it was stuff that I was eating every day. Mm-hmm. They were my safe foods. My safe foods became unsafe. And I felt so betrayed because I was like, what do you mean? This is everything that I eat. Most of the GI issues I have now are actually related to my eating disorder. Uh-huh. Um, so I have a vagal nerve issue and gastroparesis, um, which I think is, besides having genetic, you know, predisposition to IBS and stuff like that. But because I spent so long binging and purging and not eating, my vagal nerve is all whacked up. Mm-hmm. And so I know those issues and gastroparesis is where food doesn't leave your stomach 
mm -hmm. the appropriate amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it takes more than two hours for me to digest food. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't sense if I'm full or not. Mm -hmm. I know that is because I spent years upon years of not eating correctly. Um, but the eating disorders, I don't, I mean, but the food allergies, I don't know if that's related or not. It was just kind of upsetting to me that my safe foods became unsafe because then I had no idea what to eat. And then all my friends were like, well, you know, you got to make sure that you eat enough because when you're allergic to gluten and oats and dairy and shellfish, you know, there are these things that so much food goes away. Right. And so that was... I was, I, I was just, I ate a lot of tuna salad at that at one point. That sounds really hard. It also, interestingly though, like you said, sort of ignited your recovery. Like it was sort of you mm -hmm. hitting the bottom, rock bottom you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how, at one time. how do you, um, you know, I, I, I totally respect that term of exercise addiction. I think that, um, eating disorders in general share so many um, behaviors and emotions as addiction. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and thinking about the people I know um, with eating disorders and how it's so challenging because, you know, you can quit drinking or you can quit drugs. And if you use again, then you know that's a clear signal, you know, that you have slipped out of your recovery but you can't quit eating and you can't quit moving and exercising. And so how do you manage that, um, that fact that you have to continue to work with this, um, this experience that is, you know, pot potentially problematic for you, but also really necessary for life? Yes. So, um, a few of my friends here in recovery from various things, we all say we're all the same, mm -hmm. like, and I think sometimes some people kind of like, well, you can't be addicted to exercise because it's healthy or you can't be addicted to whatever it is, but you can. We're, it's just an unhealthy coping mechanism. And then going back, because we're using it because we don't know how to cope with things. Mm -hmm. um, and then going back to it's that pleasure reward thing. Um, so that's what makes us feel good. You know, for some people it's drinking, some people it's smoking. You know, for me it was not eating and then binging on exercise. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's always important to remember that they're all the same. The physiological, it's all a disease. We just use different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it was learning to have a better relationship with exercise. So when I did, when I was in the middle of my exercise addiction, you know, I'm dancing three to four days a week. I was teaching group X three to four days a week, usually multiple classes a day. I was lifting most days of the week. I was running most days of the week, which dancers should not be doing long distance running. Um, but, you know, I was running 20 miles a week. And then I was doing something every day. And I remember if I had to skip a day at the gym, I'd get the legit shakes. Like, I would be very, very uneasy. I would be very volatile. I'd be angry. And I would kind of have those little shakes going on. Because, um, you know, I was always on campus. So if I was bored, I'd go work out. If I had free time before a class or rehearsal, I'd go work out because I'd be done with all my schoolwork or I'd be done with my main job. So it was always just there. And when I started working on my exercise addiction, my therapist and I, we had to work on a plan. And I still use it to this day. So for a while, I had to quit dance. I had to quit most forms of exercise um, for a little while. 
And and then when I picked, that's where I picked up yoga, more mm-hmm. and more yoga, was because my therapist wanted me to do yoga therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning to get in touch with my body in a positive way, connect my mind-body. Because I remember him making the comment, for someone who is super connected to your body, you are the most disconnected person. Uh-huh. Because as a dancer, because as dancers, as someone with an eating disorder, we're hyper aware of our bodies. Every little sensation, and dancers can relate to this, you know the sensation of what it's like in your pinky finger when you do a port de bras or like the weird sensation in your third metatarsal maybe in your ballet shoe yeah. and like how that affects your line or your move. I mean, it's a hyper awareness that people just don't understand. But I was so aware of my body, but I couldn't feel it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's not just of where I am in space and the sensation. It's actually like, what is going on in my body? How do I feel to my body? So that's where yoga really kind of just came in and helped me was, you know, learning how to breathe properly. What does it feel like to breathe? What does it feel like to be in my body still? What's it like to be still? Which drove me up the wall and I still have a hard time with. But, you know, dancers were always moving. Mm -hmm. You know, even when we're standing there, right, we're still dancing because you have to be present. But it's a performance presence. It's not really feeling internally what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so I started doing a lot more yoga with that intention. And then when I was able to, I went back to working out. And I had to stick to a regimented program. Um, so I had to use my major of a training program <laughs> and develop a training program that was giving me what I wanted. But it, it was very timed to the T. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go over that. And I'm still that way to this day. I give myself an hour and an hour and a half to work out depending on where I'm at in my block. Whether if I'm doing like a high volume hypertrophy block, like 10s, 12s, or if I'm in the strength phase. You know, I know how long it takes me to get a workout in. And if I'm over an hour or an hour and a half, depending, I have to quit even if I'm not done with my workout. Because if I give myself more than that, it's going to lead to four hours in the gym, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, too, if I'm having a bad day, I have to ask myself, why am I working out? So there will be days where I'm scheduled not to work out, and I just do, like, yoga or something, or a day I'm just not doing anything. But, you know, something will happen, and I'll get this urge to exercise and move. I have to ask myself, is it because I need to move because I'm feeling stuck? And just, like, you know, I need a little strength just to move. Or is it because I'm trying to burn some calories? Um, so it's always constantly asking myself, why am I exercising? Why am I doing the movement? And even that is such an interesting metaphor that you just offered. Like, is it because I need to move because I'm stuck? And even that is like, is is it really a physical situation? Like, do I need instead mm-hmm. to move my perception of this thing that just happened? Or should I instead move my outlook on my situation is it really my body that I need to move or is it yeah something psychological and um Mm -hmm. yeah those are those are really interesting parallels that that movement and exercise can provide experiences that also maybe should be happening on a psychological or an emotional level not just exactly physical level yeah, because, I mean, sometimes I would be using movement to, like, numb myself, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, okay, I'm just going to run. And I loved running, 
-hmm. And I do miss the feeling that running gave me, but it would be this feeling of I'm not thinking about anything. Because in the dance studio, even though I love dance, and and it still brings me a sense of calm, but it can still, even to this day, it overstimulates me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, look at my leg. Oh, it's bent today. Like, when did that happen? Kind of thing, you know? Or like, oh, you know, my shoulders are a little open today. It, you are always thinking about something, even though you're having the time of your life dancing. I love dancing. Nothing makes me feel better than dancing. But, you know, when I run or when I lift weights, I'm not thinking about what I look like. I'm thinking about, how heavy can I lift? Like, can I get this last rep in? Mm-hmm. Or when I'm running, it was you eventually just become like thoughtless. Or I'd be running with a friend and you know, we would be venting about stuff, right? So, you know, you're getting stuff out. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes that's important too is to have an outlet that's maybe not your main outlet. You may, it may bring you a lot of joy, but it can also not be the most effective thing you need. Yeah. Which is one reason why, again, why I turn to yoga a lot of the times, because I can move with my breath there and be aware of breathing and my body in a way that's not like, I got to fit a certain shape. Yeah. And I think a lot about the um, the goal making in dance is so um, vague, because I, I do a lot of like smart goal building with students. Yeah, and, I love you know, smart goals. But a lot in dance, you know, it's hard to to bring students to really measurable goals because so often in dance it's things like I want to feel more articulation in my spine okay as a dancer and a dance teacher I know what you mean and I agree that's a great aim but like how are you gonna know when that gets better <laughs> you're just that measurable you're just, yeah you're just gonna end up constantly thinking like well, I guess it got better or maybe it didn't and it's it's not where I want it to be. It's nice at the gym to be able to say like I used to lift 10 pounds and then I practiced and I I I followed my plan and now I can lift 12 and I made that mm-hmm. happen through my agency and my, you know, um command of of the situation. And so I think Exactly. That's also a healthy thing for dancers to experience. Yeah, and I think cuz dance is hard cuz so much of it is you know, like, you're always trying to do bigger and better. Like, okay, I I got to get my quad pirouette. I can barely do a double, but I got to get my quad <laughs> in, you know, instead of working on a really beautiful double. I think it's always right. like right. we have this warped perception now. So and true. even even with the competitions, you know, like – this whole, the whole reward system in dance is kind of in a weird area because we're either like giving too many trophies or we're like telling people they're not good enough because they can't fit these X guidelines for an intensive, which really makes no sense either. It's There's always something. And sport is that same way too. It's like this never-ending quest for these ideals that are put on us and we don't know where they come from. Mm-hmm. Um and I think dance is kind of breaking those down a little bit because some of those goals are very old school and they're not applicable anymore. But there's still that whole reward of like, okay, this person really likes it when everyone's legs, this one choreographer likes it when everyone's legs are like 180. So if I can get my legs to where he likes it, then he'll like me. Right. Um, I used to have that with my feet. 
I remember I had a choreographer who hated my feet and one time almost made me cry in a rehearsal in front of people um, because she, I don't, want, I don't think she just didn't like me, period. But like, <laughs> but like she like would make these comments about my feet and I was always already uh, kind of sensitive about them because they weren't perfect dancer feet. You know, some mm-hmm. people aren't built and gifted with dancer feet. But the whole fact that Every time, so anytime she came back, I would make sure that my feet were everything that she wanted. And that that just kind of fed on my behavior that was already kind of warped. But we have this thing already in dance where it's like, I got to give the people what they want or else I'm not worthy. And so I think sometimes that can segue into these movement addictions or just warp sense of, per- warp sense of perception of our own bodies. Yeah. Um, um, I don't want, I don't want to, um, suggest that you wish that your life had been different during this tumultuous time, because it seems like you're in such a great place and you know, that was, this is your life and that was your process. But are there things that you wish somebody had said to you, to your younger self, or what would you say to your younger self or to someone who was, um, struggling the way you were and sort of the the peak period of, of your disordered eating and compulsive exercising? That's the million dollar question, isn't Isn't it? it? It's always weird when I get asked that question because I have the hardest time coming up with an answer because, Mm -hmm. um, because it's one of those like self-reflective things and I still have a hard time with that. Um, I think honestly, looking back on myself and I, the one thing I always say is that I wish I would have known that I wouldn't be dancing as much as I thought I would be. Really? I would have known if I would have known that and the whole fact that there are going to be moments in life that I'm never going to get back. Um, that I think that would have changed some of my moments because they were, I remember I had these moments at these dance intensives and these workshops and they were so incredible, but I could never fully enjoy them because I was constantly worried about what I'm what I'm going to eat at my next meal, mm-hmm. or that you know I can't participate in this because I already ate my calorie allotment for the day. So if I would have known that there are these moments and these people that I'm never going to meet again, or these people that I'm potentially going to be destructive to, who actually meant a lot to me, like the bridges that I burned, like if I would have known that my actions then, I think that's what, if I would have known that, I probably would have gotten help a lot earlier. Because I think about that all the time, is like there are these moments I'm never going to get back and I wasted them. I couldn't fully enjoy watching a moon rise on top of a mountain because I was worried about breaking the rules because we weren't supposed to be out. And, you know, I'm not going to drink with them because I already had my calories for the day and I've got to be stronger than everyone else by not giving in. And now I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to have that again. I should have just like enjoyed life. Yeah. And then for people who are struggling, I think the biggest thing, you know, because I, when I've been working with teenagers and stuff, now I always tell them, don't take it so seriously. (laughs) Because I took everything so seriously and it did not help me at all. Like, in fact, it made things worse. Mm-hmm. And that, that their bodies are great, their dancing is great, that, you know, they don't have to change. 
And I think that's something that now they're beginning to see a little bit in the dance world is a body diversity. And I think the more that that comes up, I think it'll be a safer environment. Um, But pretty much, I think it just starts with teachers and telling your kids that they're great no matter what they're doing, that they're beautiful. Um, And it's the passion that makes dancers great, not so much body facility. Mm -hmm. And then for people who are struggling, I think it's just knowing that you're never alone. I think sometimes that's what keeps people from reaching out is because we already feel ashamed Mm -hmm. because we know what we're doing is wrong. And it's, Mm -hmm. I don't want to use the word bad, but you know, it's bad. Um, We're damaging ourselves and we feel guilty and ashamed. But I think knowing that when you hear people share their stories and it sounds like your story, you're like, wow, okay, so I'm not alone. I'm, there's someone else like me. So maybe if I reach out to them, they can help me. I think it's just always being aware that I'm not alone and you'll find someone to help you out. And I think those of us who've been there, it's important for us to share our stories to spread this message of recovery is possible, you know, because there are going to be kids out there or even adults. Um, I've worked with some adults who still have some leftover body image issues, but there are people out there and they just need someone to tell them that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And you're not burdening people by asking. I mean, you are so eager to share your experience and, and the quest to help others. And so, you know, to know that there are people like you who, if you reach out to them, they will oblige with pleasure and honor. To Yeah. I mean, I'll get, I'll get DMs on Instagram, you know, a few times a week. And it's always kind of crazy when people, I don't even know these people sometimes. I'm like, oh, we have gastroparesis. I have gastroparesis too. And no one knows what that is. And I feel alone. Or, oh, your story sounds like mine. Or I remember what I was like the first time I sat in a restaurant and ate by myself alone. Mm-hmm. And your story reminded me of that. And I'm going to share my story. And I think that's important. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story here with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really informative and um, provocative. And is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Um, I would just say, you know, if you think that you have a issue with food or exercise or any kind of substance, you know, it's not just, I mean, I know it's eating, eating disorder awareness week, but it can be with anything, um, to reach out, you know, there's the, uh, NEDA has a screening tool that's anonymous. If you think it's something else, you know, there are, I know some States have hotlines, whether it's for suicide or mental health or whatever, there are um, local hotlines that you can call and ask for help. Um, And then sometimes even just a Google search of, you know, therapist or free programs. Um, I always say, you know, AA programs or whatever, 12-step programs are always free and they're always around. Mm -hmm. And that can be a really great, jumping point for people who don't know where to begin because it's a no judgment zone so i think just finding someone to help you if you think you're struggling whether it's through a hotline or through a group i think that's that can't be stressed enough great thank you so much leslie um it's been just a pleasure to speak with you oh thank you 
On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about our podcast by visiting www.dancewellpodcast.com. We wouldn't be where we are without generous contributions from our listeners. Your contributions help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees, and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support, and lastly, if you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye!